0: Happy Saturday. It's April 23rd, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker.
1: And I'm Michael Haney.
0: And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail.
1: Ashley, you're back in the saddle, healthy. You kicked COVID's butt.
0: I washed my hair today. Not to brag. (laughs) I walked around the reservoir. Again, not to brag.
1: Gonna wash that covert right out of my hair?
0: (laughs) Something like that. It's so nice to get outside again. I've just been sequestered in my apartment all morning watching porn. Well I should specify Wait, it's absolutely porn. Whoa,
1: whoa. Good morning. <laughs> hey everyone. Wake up.
0: It's a lively day. No. Wow. Okay Michael.
1: Shake and bake.
0: Honey, it's not technically porn, but it constitutes porn for the airmail reader. Have you seen Anatomy of a Scandal?
1: With Sienna Miller?
0: Yeah, I mean, Sienna Miller, Michelle Dockery, Rupert Friend. I mean, it's the number one show on Netflix right now for very good reason. I mean, it's David E. Kelly, right? So it reminds me of that Nicole Kitman, Hugh Grant thing that took place in New York, remember? What was the name of that show?
1: Oh, the one with the bad coat that everyone got upset about.
0: Yeah, see, we've already forgotten about that. This is the the London version, and it is everything that an airmail reader Once in a show. It's got rich people behaving badly, political intrigue, cloak and dagger nonsense, and even criminal charges. So it stars Rupert Friend as the imperiled MP and Sienna Miller as his wife, Michelle Dockery as the barrister who is handling some charges against the MP and plenty of other actors we love. So it's compulsively watchable and something that everyone is going to be talking about this week.
1: Problems at the workplace.
0: Anyway, enough with me procrastinating, Michael. Let's dive into the issue.
1: Let's dive in. Where should we begin?
0: Perils of online dating? Sure. Workplace Karen's? Where not to begin?
1: I would like to start with workplace Karen's. Which is sort of like probably, I think our theme for the week is just a lot of bad actors, not dramatic actors, just bad actors in society.
0: Okay, let's start with Workplace Karen's.
1: Let's start with them by David Kaufman. David this week writes about the emergence of what he calls the corporate Karen. You remember the Central Park Karen who summoned the police over a birdwatcher in the bushes who was a black man. But the corporate Karen now heads straight to HR over any perceived slight, no matter how minor. And it's sort of driven by, as David identifies, HR departments right now are terrified of Twitter storms. And the millennial and Gen Z workers have been given free reign to unleash Karen-style terror in offices large and small, as he says. So what they're doing is they sort of succeed in manipulating corporate guilt and exploiting HR fragility at this moment.
0: Yeah, this is a fascinating story. And David writes about his own experience with a corporate Karen, who was one of his colleagues of his in a, at a previous job. And this woman reported him to HR because he was, as he writes, humorously complaining about his quote unquote Mexican Wi-Fi. He was on a business trip in Mexico City and it was spotty apparently. And this woman took offense to that and poor David had to go into HR and get sort of raked over the coals for this a little bit.
1: But what's fascinating as well is, as David points out, there's nothing new about corporate Karens. She said a generation ago, there was simply kind of the busybodies in the office, the Gladys Kravitzes, as you will, walking around, sticking their nose in. But with nearly 50% of the U.S. workforce now comprises millennials and Gen Zers. And so what's happening? Traditional hierarchies are quickly eroding. And the result, those with the least experience and loudest voices, not just in the office, but on social media, are wielding outsized control over HR departments and oftentimes the fates of their far older colleagues.
0: Have you ever done online dating, Michael?
1: I can truthfully say I never have. I came along just at the end of my bachelorhood, and then I met Brooke, and it was all who I met in person. So no, I never engaged in the digital world. How about you?
0: Michael, you might as well say it loud and proud. We are too old. (laughs) Okay. But after reading Nancy Joe Sales' latest story in Aramail, I'm glad that we're too old for online dating because this whole universe seems like a treacherous place. All right, Michael, you and I could talk about online dating all day long, but Thank goodness. We've got Nancy Joe Sales here to tell us about the horrors of the professional matchmaker. Now, Nancy Joe has uncovered many important stories over the years. She's been a reporter, contributing editor at New York Magazine, Harper's Bazaar. She's been writing for Vanity Fair since 2000. She wrote a marvelous book called American Girls, Social Media and the Secret Lives of Teenagers. It's essential reading for anyone who is either a woman, knows a woman or is raising one. And her latest is Nothing Personal, My Secret Life in the Dating App Inferno. So who better to tackle the world of the professional matchmaker, than Nancy Joe Sales. Welcome, Nancy Jo.
2: Thank you. Hello. Thank you. That was so nice.
0: So tell us about this horrifying operation that you encountered and how you encountered them.
2: Kelleher International is a matchmaking service for quote unquote, the ultra wealthy. That was what Fortune Magazine called it at one point. They are based in California. They're run by a sort of mother-daughter team, Jill Kelleher and her daughter, Amber Kelleher Andrews. Amber Kelleher Andrews is in her 50s. She's a former actress who was on shows like Baywatch and Melrose Place. She joined her mother's matchmaking service. Her mother founded it in the 80s. And she joined it in the 90s and really did a very effective job of raising the profile. She hired great publicists who got it on Nightline and Good Morning America and The Today Show and made it into this reportedly premier dating service for CEOs, heads of companies, billionaires, people who were wealthy and busy and just didn't have the time to find love. So I was not aware of this company myself, but it received yet another glowing sort of profile in the LA Times a couple of months ago. And it was really more a profile of Amber Kelleher Andrews, who now is, mostly runs the company. And it was about how great they were doing and how she's a matchmaker to the stars, matchmaker to the rich and famous. It showed her in her multi-million dollar mansion in LA. Well... Someone who saw this piece and had been seeing these many, many pieces over the years that talked about what a wonderful matchmaking service this was, contacted Airmail Weekly and said, I have a different story to tell you about Kelleher International. We spoke to a woman who alleges that she was sexually assaulted on a date that was arranged by Kelleher International. And tell us a little bit
0: about how this matchmaking service handled that and how that ties into the problems that many of these services and dating apps have over the issue of criminality.
2: Several of the current and former employees of Kelleher International that I spoke to mentioned sexual assault allegation that they were aware of that had happened several years ago on a date arranged by Kelleher. They were aware of a Yelp review that the woman at the center of the allegation, whose name, which I will say because she has very bravely shared it with us and allowed us to name her in the story. Her name is Kelly Gast. She is the owner of a luxury spas in California, very successful woman, CEO in her own right. And she was same deal, busy, a high powered, didn't have time to date, newly separated from her husband. So she signed up for a package with Kelleher. And these packages tend to be very expensive. They range from $30,000 to $300,000. Kelly Gass signed up in 2008 and she signed up for a package of, I believe it was $10,000, which is still a lot. And she was set up on a few dates that she was sort of underwhelmed. And then Kelleher told her, well, we have this really great guy. He's sort of a friend of the service. We want you to go out with him. He asked her to come to his house, which she agreed to do because he came so highly recommended. And she assumed that he was a safe guy. And she was going to a safe space because Kelleher had set her up on the state. And she went to his house and she alleges that he raped her. She also made a police report. It's very hard to prove charges of rape. He was never arrested or charged with a crime, but she tried very hard in cooperation with the police to prove this case. And when I spoke to Amber Kelleher Andrews, who again, is the head of the company now. I asked her first if she knew of any sexual assaults that had ever occurred on Kelleher dates. And she said, such intense questions. You know, she she didn't like the question it seemed. And then she said, well, no, she wasn't aware of any such sexual assaults. I think the bigger picture for us to consider is that this is one case among countless that happen in the dating industry. All anybody needs to do is Google Dating app, dating app sexual assault. And you will be met with just thousands and thousands of links that will tell you the stories of women who, and men and others who have suffered these experiences without what's so troubling about it is that very little accountability on the.
1: I just do want to say that in your story, Kelly Andrews, PR rep does say, quote, to prevent any potential issues, our strict vetting policy weeds out any individuals with a problematic history. So
2: that was shared by a PR rep after I had already spoken to Amber Keller Andrews on the telephone, and she told me on the record that we can't promise that this vetting is 100% accurate. All online dating a total scam? We have to make the distinction. So there's online dating. And then then there are thousands of online dating companies. And then there are these high priced matchmaking services, which there's really only a handful. I mean, I think there's really less than 10 of note in this country. What I've seen in my reporting is that whether it's someone who makes $30,000 a year or someone who makes $30 billion a year, all people are vulnerable in this case when they need someone. Well, Nancy Jo, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me
1: isn't this one of those moments you're just kind of glad when you're just sitting on the couch having a quiet night at home You're like you almost found like remember when you were younger and people say i wouldn't want to be out there dating right now and now
0: yeah exactly like everyone who's single right now and who's been considering dabbling into online dating has just had their minds made up for them no thanks it's better to be single and alone
1: seriously i was talking to some youngs recently. And they were asking me, how do you meet someone IRL in real life? I was like, I thought they were putting me on. And they said, I said, well, don't you ever just like go to a bar with a friend or two or, and hope to just meet someone and talk to them? And they said, no, because that's scary. I said, what do you mean? I said, you never know who you're going to meet. I don't get it.
0: Wait, that's fascinating. So they think that it's scarier to suss someone out in real life than it is to suss them out via a 250-word online dating profile?
1: Don't you remember you come home with a phone number scribbled on a piece of a napkin and that's all you had, right?
0: I mean, back in the day, you could date someone for several months without even knowing (laughs) their last name or their profession. And frankly, it was pretty fun.
1: Or their profession or knowing where they lived exactly, you know, or
0: or where they went to college, or what grades they had, or what address they had. like It was very liberating. People were reinventing themselves every night back in those days. Life was grand. Michael, New York City, when we were coming of age in it, it was the pickup capital of the world. I mean, I can name 15 bars and clubs right off the top of my head where you could go on a Thursday or Friday or Saturday night. If you had a pulse, you could end up with a date for the next night. Like It seems so foreign to these kids now that Back then, I mean, there was such an art to the whole thing, and it was so much fun. And, you know, the night held endless pot. God, our single days, Michael. And let me tell you, the city was many things, but it was never lonely. Anyway, now that we've solved all the problems of the world and virtually turned back the clock 20 years, the moment is here. Amy O'Dell's Anna, the biography, is at last gracing bookshelves, both digital and virtual, near you within mere moments. And we finally have a review. in now I read this a few months ago and it's basically all I've been thinking about ever since. And thank goodness, Alexandra Shulman has reviewed it for us in the issue this week. Now, Alex was the editor in chief of British Vogue from 1992 through 2017. So she has graced many front rows and many of the times that she has graced those front rows. She has been sitting next to Anna Wintour. The two were longtime colleagues and they were very collegial and had an interesting relationship, which Alex writes about in Airmail this week. And she also gives us her take on this biography of the woman behind the sunglasses. We are thrilled to have Alex here to talk all about it. Welcome, Alex Shulman. <laughs> Thanks, Ashley. Well, first of all, you know what it's like to run a brand like Vogue. What should readers know about this? Everyone seems to have an opinion on Anna Wintour, not only because of her job as a magazine editor, and she's an excellent one, as you write in your review, but what does it mean to run a brand like that? What are some of the pressures associated with the job? Like, How can you give us a sense of empathy for her going into this read?
3: (laughs) Well, I think what's interesting is all editors do it different ways. And there are so many different Vogue editors and until now, where there seems to be increasingly few, they all being thrown off a cliff. But so everyone does it in their own different way. And actually, what I was sort of fascinated by reading this book is that I could have been Anna. The similarities between myself and Anna's lives, early lives, are so similar as to be spooky. She became Anna Winter and did what she did. And I remained Alexandra Shulman doing what I did and such different kind of approaches to doing the job. So that was really sort of one of the things that was running through my mind when I was writing about it. I mean, Editing Vogue, it's a big brand name. You're very aware that you're in charge of, of something, I think, that's bigger than you. I mean, I think to be a successful Vogue editor, you do have to realise that. And I think Anna is always sort of fighting for Vogue.
0: Jerry Oppenheimer, I think, had has written another book about Anna that came out in the 90s or maybe in the early aughts that we all devoured. But Anna, the biography is a very different take on it. It's written by Amy O'Dell, who was a longtime editor of Cosmopolitan.com. She also worked at New York Magazine's The Cut. And she's interviewed hundreds of people for this book. And Alex, you and know, I have both read this and we sort of have a view on it. But I felt like the first early years of Anna's life were fairly well sourced, right? She seemed to have a lot of insight into them. We don't seem to know an awful lot about what makes her tick. How did you interpret that? in the biography?
3: Well, it's definitely a big hole in the biography because I think if you're interested in reading about somebody that is creative, whether they're creating a business or whether they're creating literature or art or movies. What makes them tick is, after all, not the only interesting thing about them, but one of the interesting things about them. I didn't really feel that Amy managed to get that. I got the sense from this book that there were people close to Anna who did talk to the biographer and who did so with Anna's blessing but there weren't a lot of key people that would really know what it was like doing her job. I didn't get a sense of what it was like doing the job. I mean, I know what it's like doing the job, but most people don't.
0: Right. I mean, we've read some great biographies in the past few years of people like Diana Vreeland, who had a real passion for the creation of anything, right? Whether it was a magazine or a book or a picture or a story. It's hard to tell what turns Anna on. And I think you're right. It's because we don't have a lot of... I think in terms of the designers that spoke to her, it was largely Tom Ford, right? And Jack and Laz from Perlun's A Schooler. But we didn't hear from Ralph Armani, the big guns whose careers that she's made. Do you have a sense of why you think that might be?
3: I thought about this a lot. Are the gaps because... Those people weren't interested in contributing. Are the gaps because they were too concerned that what they said Anna might not like? Why was it? Were they asked at all to contribute? I don't know. I mean, Amy asked me, sent me an email and said, would I be interviewed for it? And I got in touch with Anna, first of all, and said, what is the book? Is it something you're happy for people to talk to? And she came back immediately and said, we know it's going on. We're trying to make it as accurate as possible. Kind of thing, so that didn't really answer why there's no Ralph Lauren, there's no Stephen Meisel, there's no Gigi Hadid, or any number of people, Nicole Kidman, any number of people who know Anna really quite well or have worked with her in detail that could have made it, I think, a more creatively interesting book. The odd thing about it is that you come out of it at the end and you don't know whether Amy Adele admires or doesn't admire her.
0: And I think that's in some ways a function of her mixed reputation, right? I think a lot of people feel that way. And here's a question I want to ask you as someone who's dedicated a fair amount of their career to magazines. In the last half of the book, The part of it that I loved so much was the early days of magazines, right? There was this real like sense of energy and joy, not necessarily among like what we saw on Anna, but just the people around her talking about this period in the 80s and 90s in both London and New York. But then the sort of the second half of the book is consumed by the corporate machinations that Anna dealt with at Vogue and sort of the decline of the magazine editor as this cultural arbiter how do you think that that played out? Or do you agree with that or disagree with that?
3: It's an interesting question. Certainly, there's a kind of nostalgia that I guess somebody like me has for the great days. I mean, these were sort of incredible magazine days. And I think even by the time Anna had gone to Vogue, things had changed in terms of magazines had become more of a business. I mean, it's that's the point about magazines. I mean, however much you want to Pretend they're not. At the end of the day, the big magazines like that are there to make new houses money. It wasn't kind of just a fun project. And I think you're right. You don't get a sense in the book of Anna's excitement and joy that I have to say, putting together a magazine is really fun. That thing of where you get the right headline and the picture's really telling the story or you get a fantastic piece in and you just think this is so good. And you never have an instance of that. And certainly now, sadly, I think that whole sense of the thrill of magazine journalism has really gone. I mean, I'm just hoping it's going to be a blip and the pendulum somehow will switch back. But, you know, when you just have people called content creators, for Christ's sake, I mean, what is that most joyless term ever? <laughs> it's
0: so true. I think it's interesting, too. I think you and I talked about this is the thing we see Anna doing the most at work is killing stories, right? Like firing people and killing stories. That seemed to be kind
3: of. And crying. What I say in the piece, she's always crying, which is scarcely likely. Right. But she is in the book.
0: Right. Now, you knew her well. You guys sat next to each other in the front rows for 20 years, 25 years, maybe longer. Give us your impressions of her.
3: I'm always struck by how smart she is. She is just very, very clever. And she is unbelievably loyal to the people that she cares about and unbelievably disinterested in the people she doesn't care about.
1: Two questions for you. She comes across always, not just in the book, but in life as very cool. I don't mean cool in a hipster way, I mean cool emotionally, cool detached, right? And I think one of your frustrations as you write about this week is in the pages of this book, you don't get a sense of what drives her. But if you had to guess at what drives her, what do you think it would be?
3: I think she's very competitive. I think she wants to be on top of every single thing she possibly can be and right in the frame. And she's driven by that kind of desire to never be a bystander. She wants to be a participator.
1: You also have a line in the story where you refer to her as the great survivor, right? And someone who triumphs, her ability to triumph over failures is a masterclass, right? How do you see that?
3: Well, I think magazine politics are like every kind of politics. They're ruthless and relentless. And I think Anna has time and time again managed to swerve herself in the direction, in the right direction. She'll make mistakes, she'll make missteps, and we all do. But many of us don't survive those, or many of us are kind of haunted by them. And that kind of impacts, I think, the way we react to future things. And, and I think with, I get a sense with Anna is that like, well, OK, she, she has an idea. It doesn't work. She doesn't think, oh, my God, how could I have thought that and wasted that money and everything or whatever? You know, she just goes, OK, that didn't work. On with the next. It's no surprise for me to say, because I'm only saying what everybody thinks, that it's quite remarkable with all the turmoil that's been happening at Condé now with union strikes and fuss about diversity and pay inequality and this, that and the other, that Anna has been literally put in the person, leading the charge. She's out there, the spear carrier, the first one marching into the front line. And you might have thought two things. You might have thought that, did she really want to be that? I mean, God knows I wouldn't at this point. Quite nice to do something else, spend a bit of time doing other things, but no, there she is, into the battle. And interesting that that's who they have wanted, to lead them into this sort of new age where they're having to change everything so much.
1: Well, I was also struck when you talk about her being mind-numbingly curt and veering into all-out rudeness at times.
3: I mean, you have picked out kind of my most kind of critical <laughs> phrases, but yeah, she can be very curt and definitely doesn't feel any need to speak Unless she chooses to. I mean, it's a skill I really wish I had, actually. It's one of the things I envy about her. that. Because I think that way you don't find yourself held culpable for so many things. Because you just keep your mouth shut.
0: It's true. After reading this, I think, like, this woman is just made of tougher stuff than I am, right? Like, she just seems, like, impervious to so many of the emotions that derail me, I guess, or like many people. I don't know. But it is a
3: real talent.
1: But it must take a toll if she's seen crying in the office all the time.
3: Yeah, I don't know how often. It's, what, 74 (laughs) years compressed into, well, actually a very long 480 pages. But I was just kind of struck by how often she was crying through elections. She's crying when a story gets killed. She's crying with this, that, and the other. And I actually felt that it was the way that Amy Adele was trying to give her a kind of a humanity when she was in places struggling to find evidence of her kind of, not her generosity, because she's clearly generosity, but possibly the warmness that is, is undoubtedly there. It's just she doesn't choose to splash it all over everyone.
0: Yeah, I mean, there were a few anecdotes about that, but the one that stuck out to me was Anne McNally said that she changed a diaper once. There was that anecdote.
3: There was another wonderful one where there's like a mother, somebody says, you know, oh, well, you know, she did her best, She's working really hard, did her best to be like a mom to her children at school. And I came, went around one day, and there she was emptying the dishwasher. And I'm like, this is some woman where the fact that you're emptying a dishwasher is seen of an activity of note. <laughs> <laughs>
0: My other favorite anecdote was that she orders for lunch. She gets her lunch at the Palm, which is a steakhouse down by the World Trade Center offices of Condé Nast. And she orders a steak and a caprese salad without the tomatoes. Isn't that just cheese and parsley? Like what is that? Anyway, but yes, there were definitely some funny reporting anecdotes in there. This is probably not the last conversation you and I and Michael are going to have about this book because it's coming out in 2 weeks and at the biography by Amy O'Dell and everyone's talking about it and Alexander Schulman's review in Airmail is by far the most important one that you will read. So Alex, thank you so much for joining us. It's always great to talk to you. Thanks you guys. <laughs>
1: That was great, right?
0: Yeah, that was great. These are the kind of book reviews I live for.
1: Well, you know what? There's another book that came out this week about another prominent person from the UK, in the UK, by Simon Cooper. It is a book called Chums, How a Tiny Cast of Oxford Tories Took Over the UK. And in the issue this week, Simon writes about his identity behind the book, which was he went to Oxford and he says when he was there from 88 to 92, there was a cohort of private school educated conservative men who were there with him who went on to drag the UK out of the European Union and now we're in the country. Boris Johnson is prime minister. Other guys are Dan Hannon, Jacob Rees-Mogg and Dominic Cummings, who've all remade the UK. And in this book, which is pretty great. He talks about how every Oxford student in the 80s had come from a relatively privileged background, but few belonged to the largely hereditary all-male private school elite. But there were not so the conservative posh boys, as he calls them. They had begun mastering the political art of public speaking, which is particularly valued, as we know, in Britain. During high school, Johnson, for one, knew how to do it. He ran Eaton's Debate Society when he got to Oxford. He knew how to win elections and debates, not by boring the audience, but with carefully timed jokes, calculating lowerings of voice and ad hominem jibes. So it's a very revealing look inside how this cohort, as he says, of chums, sort of remade... The UK, for better or for worse, these guys who came together at Oxford in the 80s. On a lighter note, there's a nice little piece of news out of the UK this week. Did you ever play pickleball?
0: No, I didn't. And I know it's a thing right now, and no, I don't really play
1: it. You know what? You Good, because you can skip right over it, because according to George Kalajarakis in this week's diary, the new hot court game is paddleball, P-A-D-E-L, and it's sprung up in the UK. Queen's Club and a number of these private clubs are building courts that the Times of London is widely dismissed as tennis for pensioners and kids, a dumbed-down version of a venerable game. But it's played on a court that's a third of the size of a tennis court. You serve underhanded and you're allowed to play off the wall. Now, if you think, oh, who's going to play this? Well, all the cool kids, David Beckham, Rafi Nadal, Djokovic, and even Andy Murray are fans. And Murray has even bought, he's backing a Edinburgh-based Operator, so I'm sure it's going to be showing up in all our local assisted living centers and Florida communities very soon.
0: Yeah, thanks. I'm going to take a pass on that. i spent way too many man hours trying to be mediocre at tennis, and I'm come on, to you and I my were great at
1: tennis. Remember we had our lessons last season? Come on, you we were great. <laughs>
0: we're a fearsome doubles team, and we invite anyone to challenge us. You'll definitely win, but you have to buy us a drink if you beat us. Done.
1: We're going to play again this summer. Oh God,
0: it's coming. Okay, well, Michael, before we go out and embrace the weekend. Do you have anything at all to recommend?
1: I do. And maybe it goes along with the sort of theme of corporate Karens and back to work. You alluded to it a minute ago. I'm going to go with Severance on Apple Plus. Have you seen it?
0: I haven't. It's the weirdest show and I love everything about it.
1: Okay, just in time for the return to office that so many of us are facing or dreading. This show, which stars Adam Scott, and was directed largely by Ben Stiller, follows, I think, in that territory that was staked out by Charlie Kaufman with being John Malkovich. But then it combines elements of, I think, Jordan Peele, Wes Anderson, and Kafka. The idea is simple-ish, I'll say. Adam Scott, he works at a company where he's undergoing a surgical procedure that separates his work memories from his outside life memories the complications, as well as the questions begin there. There's a supporting cast that includes Christopher Walken, John Turturro, and Patricia Arquette, who's amazing. They're all amazing. It's beautifully shot in this very mesmerizing way. I would say it's a little slow to get going, but stick with it and you'll be amazed where it takes you. I think it's a show for these times that we're living in. As I say, whether you're having to go back to work or dreading going back to work or wherever you are in your work life, I think it's terrific. It's going to be I wouldn't even predict a real contender for an Emmy. As I say, severance on Apple Plus.
0: Thank you very much. And you, dear? All right. Well, one thing on a restaurant note, our friend Daniel Belude is opening a Lyonnaise Bistro, not mayonnaise, Lyonnaise Bistro, um, in the Beekman Hotel near City Hall. And it is called Le Gratin NYC. I mean, what more do you want? It's an informal restaurant from Danielle. They're serving gratins. Okay. A gratin is something covered in cheese. So we will definitely be there. It looks delightful. Lots of wine from Southern Burgundy, vintagey decor. It sounds like an awful lot of fun. So we will be there very soon. And then on a television note. Fanny Herrero, who was the creator of Call My Agent, has a great new little show on Netflix. It's called Standing Up, and it follows the lives and sets of aspiring stand-up comics in Paris. And what I like about it is that it's a story about stand-up comics. It's not really all that funny, but it's very witty and smart and cleverly done, so I highly recommend that. It's called Standing Up, and it's on Netflix.
1: Hey, speaking of restaurants... Yes. You know I love everything Alex LeBrono writes about, but he's got... If you've ever been to Milos, which is the awesome restaurant in Midtown, run by Costa Spiliades, right? He's got a new hotel in Athens.
0: Yeah, this looks like a great place to stay. And the prices are not outrageous either. I feel like every new hotel that's been opening in Greece is a fortune to stay in. And the rates here started around $250 a night. And it's beautiful and right in the center of town. It's in a great neighborhood. It looks like an awful lot of fun.
1: Have you heard of the phrase revenge travel? <laughs> no, what is that? I came across it, I think, in the Wall Street Journal recently. It's what everyone's going to engage in this summer. A lot of people didn't get away last summer either. Now it's just like they're all going to take their revenge and sort of plan these big trips, long trips, getting back out there and taking revenge. So I just saw that Venice, they had as many tourists over Easter break at pre-pandemic levels. And now they're so worried about this that they're talking about putting a 10 euro surcharge on day trippers coming into the city.
0: I bet many locals would support that. And locals and environmental activists alike. Exactly. Great. All right. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. It's always a treat to have you here. Wishing you a beautiful weekend. And Michael, please read us out.
1: Produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitale. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Air Mail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thanks for joining us.